So if your frontline management has not bought into the mission, has not bought into the vision, and if they cannot articulate why the company is going, where the company is going, and if the frontline management don't have what I call the founder's mindset and really believing in the company, it really gets into the trust deficit. Make sure that your frontline management really is in tune with the company because that's how the trust works. I need some traction. You need some traction. Let's get some traction. Hey, what's up, innovators, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and disruptors? This is your Traction Podcast host, Lloyd Lobo. We're a community of over 100,000 people, just like yourself, on a mission to help you get the methods, the money, and the madness to explode your business growth. Featuring stories and tactical advice straight from those who've done it before, like Shopify, Twilio, Asana, and many more. This episode is brought to you by Boast.ai. Each year, the U.S. and Canadian governments give out billions of dollars in R&D tax credits and innovation incentives to fund businesses like yours. But the application process is cumbersome, prone to frustrating audits, and receiving the money can take up to 16 months. Boast.ai gets you access to research and development tax credits and innovation funding opportunities without the headache and red tape. Join thousands of North American companies leveraging Boast AI software to maximize cashback. Check out boast.ai. This episode is also brought to you by Launch Academy, an international tech hub that provides mentorship, resources, network, and the environment for entrepreneurs to launch, fund, and grow their startups. Since 2012, Launch Academy has incubated over 6,000 entrepreneurs, of which 300 have grown their startups past seed and series A and have collectively raised over $1.2 billion in funding. To learn more about Launch Academy's programs, check out launchacademy.ca. Special thanks to our podcast partner, Content Allies. From podcast production and promotion, Content Allies helps B2B companies build revenue-generating podcasts. We recommend them to any B2B company that's looking to launch or streamline their podcast production. Learn more at contentallies.com. As a startup, the bulk of your valuation is built on the technological scale you can achieve. Without a product that scales and grows, you can't have a highly valued company, right? Startups are built in stages from idea to product market fit and scale. And the kind of product and engineering playbook you implement for your stage makes all the difference between hyper growth and missing the boat. Alok Tyagi here is top 25 software product executive in 2021, a serial product and engineering leader with experience ranging from giants like Sage and Oracle to fast growth startups with exits and IPOs. And he's going to share the playbook for high performing software teams so you can continue to ship blockbuster products consistently. Alok has 30 years of hands-on engineering experience in the enterprise software industry from product strategy, product management, GTM, design and development of market-leading software companies. And he also worked at Passport companies, like I said, RealPage, which went public, and DealerSocket, which was acquired by Solera. Alok, thanks for joining us. It's a great pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great, Lloyd. Thank you for having me. So really appreciate you inviting me and really looking forward to the chat. You've had a very fascinating journey, super impressive background running product and tech at both giants and high growth startups. Walk us through your backstory. How did you get to where you are today? On a personal side, Lloyd, pretty simple, born and brought up in India, humble family and really grew up in a family where my dad was getting transferred every couple of years. So I got comfortable with change early on, and I had many people who supported my journey. So my journey is a lot about that change and people. On the professional front, I started as an engineer. I call myself a builder and as a technologist uh, turned a product leader and over the years turned a business leader. And in my journey, you know, started as a 
hardcore techie and used to be on the technology side at JD Edwards, then started running technology businesses from JD Edwards to PeopleSoft to Oracle, and then just kept growing. And so here I am <laughs> speaking to you guys after really having done at least five or six different stints running product and technology businesses across different companies. What a fantastic journey from humble beginnings. Now you've led the enterprise SaaS business of a small company, as well as some really large companies, hyper growth, exits, IPOs, large giants. What are the key learnings from operating such diverse businesses? Yeah, so like uh, the few things, very fortunate to run the small business to big business. One, I feel that there are some myths. There is a general perception that small businesses are fast and nimble and big businesses are slow. While I'm sure there are examples on both sides, I have now seen small businesses also that are slow. And it all depends. I think there are few attributes. In some regards, small businesses are relatively easy. You don't have that bigger of an organization. So you don't have that bigger of a communication collaboration challenges. But if you are a small business born in 80s or 90s or early 2000s, you bring the same complexity when it comes to the product and technology of any large company. So that is one aspect of it that when we look at a small business, I look at it more the attributes of are you a growing company? Are you a performing company? Particularly in the enterprise SaaS business, there are certain common aspects of a growing company. One, are you deeply customer connected? Whether you are small or large, if you are not, it becomes pretty difficult. Or are you really delivering continuous value to the customer? It's very important that if you're not doing it, then it doesn't matter. So there are certain common attributes that I have seen that makes a high-performing company. If you look at the giants today, Microsoft, Oracle, SAP, Amazon, Salesforce, these are multi-billion dollar company and still growing 25 plus year over year. In fact, Microsoft took decades to get to a trillion dollar in enterprise value, but the next trillion dollar just came in the last two years. To me, just generalizing what that large and small looks like, I have felt that there are some common attributes that makes a high performing and growing business. And that's what I really call that we, there are common attributes that we can build playbooks on. A lot of companies, they raise huge rounds of funding to scale product and engineering. Then they try to go and hire big company, pedigreed CTOs, but then they realize, hey, some of my speed is getting lost in terms of process. So one of the major questions everyone wants to understand is, how do you optimize for that speed? How do you make sure as a company, you grow from an early stage to a large company and preserve that startup mentality? So there are a couple of playbooks, if we back up a, a minute here, Lloyd, that we will talk about and at least want to bring five different playbooks. And the first one is certainly about the speed. And we just don't want to sacrifice that, especially as the company grow. If you think about it, the advantage that startups bring is the founder. It's the compelling aspect of vision that they bring to the table. And they can help make decisions very fast. And they are also, if you are working in a small business, there is a good chance that everyone is deeply customer connected. Those are some of the cherished value that we just want to continue that as a company grow from a small business to big, as we are talking about building speed just does not go away. The right kind of speed is also important. You talk about speed of consumption as a differentiator. What does it actually mean? There are two aspects of speed. Generally speaking, when you speak with anyone, they'll say, we just want our product and technology team to deliver fast. And there used to be a time in our industry when we used to really deliver a software release, we used to celebrate. I have done enough of these software releases, delivery fast, only to find out that at the other end, no one is actually cares about it or no one is using it. So that's where I start talking a lot more about there is a speed of production that we have to grow but we have to also grow a speed of consumption. We can grow a speed of production, Lloyd, by doing really understanding whatever is holding back on decision-making or making sure that your agile team is well-balanced. 
making sure that you can reduce interruptions that gets to the team that causes them to not able to do that. So speed of production, while difficult, it's feasible. Speed of consumption is where I really want us to focus more about. And working with these companies that you've seen, we all speak of speed, how to accelerate R&D execution. What have you seen work in increasing the pace of execution? So this is where on the speed of consumption is really, if you don't start with an end in mind. So like I encourage my product organization lawyer to start with a press release. If you don't think about press release upfront, before you start even beginning to develop code and invest millions of dollars, because the press release should be able to call out very clearly to the economic buyer what value we are creating in a very measurable way that economic buyers can really understand and why would they buy what you are doing. So building that upfront is very important. Then the second aspect that really drives speed is that really making it a cross-functional effort in the company. You will find out that you can get product and technology to complete the work, but your sales enablement, your marketing enablement, your pricing aspect, many of the different go-to market elements in more companies than not, that just happens at the tail end of it once product and tech is done and product is now being just thrown across the wall and now teams are scrambling to go get it done. Unfortunately, what happens is while we may have got a great product done, but it just does not achieve the commercial outcome. It just does not achieve the customer outcome. So in terms of the speed, then people look at it and come and say, oh, but this thing just didn't achieve what we wanted to really achieve in terms of the outcome. So as we think about the speed, not only about the production aspect, how you go get it done fast, but more on the consumption aspect, make sure that they start with an end in mind. You definitely have a press release upfront and make sure that your cross enablement, and this is where the CEOs have to play an important role because anytime you are introducing a new releases or new kind of a product or getting into new marketing, you have to keep educating sales. You have to keep educating marketing. You have to keep really evangelizing what this whole new capability look like so that it can achieve the outcome that we are looking for. Dive into the press release aspect because this is very fascinating and I've heard some very successful companies also take this approach. What are some key elements you include in there and then how do you align the cross-functional teams around that? So one of the main aspect of, at least on the press release that I really harp on with my team is those value statements and to an economic buyer, how can you put that in an objective way? In fact, that is one of the main KPI that we also drive. So if we have delivered a capability, we have delivered, maybe let's take a step back. For example, more product company, if you read their press release, it will come across describing what that feature does. If we have built a saddle, it's one of the story that gets told in the product industry, we describe what beautiful that saddle is. And generally those are the kind of press releases that goes out. But the guys who are buying the saddle, they're buying the saddle because they want a beautiful, they want a great horse ride. So it's more about really writing those press releases in terms of those business outcome that you are looking for in terms of, and, and make it objective. So I think that is one big aspect of it. The rest you can really put together. There are ways to go about writing it. But if it doesn't really come out that you as an economic buyer who is already having press for time, that when you pick up the press release, it should really come across that it has solved my big problem and it will materially give me the outcome that I'm looking for before I go use it. Beautifully said, customers are looking for an outcome. They don't want software. Your job is to deliver that outcome from your communication to your messaging to your product, to your service, end-to-end, -end, delivering them that outcome. Talk in terms of the outcome your customer is going to achieve. And a great way to align people is starting with that. You are how you invest R&D dollars. Otherwise, more R&D dollars just produces more garbage. How do you approach R&D investment? Yeah, that's a great question, Lloyd. And I do use that quote very often because having run really large organizations, 
I have generally seen the more dollars you put, and if you are not being very thoughtful about utilizing it, we only produce more garbage fast. Maybe I'll give a simpler example for everyone to understand. Let's just go by how we invest our own personal dollars. So let's say if you have $100 to invest, generally speaking, at least in American context, people will be, if you go speak to a wealth manager, your wealth manager will say that you need to invest some money into fixed deposit or in some kind of a fixed income. It's about less risk, but you will always have some kind of a recurring income coming. Then they will say, maybe you invest next 30, 40, 60, $70 dollar out of that $100 towards growth. That way you may want to really invest in companies like Amazon's and Tesla's of the world. And then they will say, maybe you want to invest $10, $15 if you want. Go invest in some new concepts that are coming up, things like maybe crypto, if you are interested in that. So you build a well-balanced portfolio that makes sure that you are investing for now and for your immediate need of the family. And then you also are growing your $100 as well as you are really investing in whatever disruptive or alternate investment that you would do. Very similar to in the company. So because R&D dollars are about roughly 20% of revenue, if not bigger in the smaller businesses, it's your hard-earned money. So very similarly, you got to invest your R&D dollars for what I call it run, grow, transform. So run is all about your current product for your current set of customer. Make sure that it results into a better retention. It results into lowering your churn, results into really taking care of customers and improving net promoter score. The growth is all about few big strategic rocks where you are trying to take your business next that need to really result into higher level of booking. And transform is all about seed income that you want to really invest in, in terms of any transformative so that you don't want your business, your company gets disrupted by some other upcomer. So balancing those investments, and if you don't put those guardrails that you will find out in almost every company now that I have seen, if you don't have those guardrails, your urgent stuff that just keeps knocking on your door will keep displacing what you think is important and strategic for your growth. And that just becomes a good way for you to really look at the R&D and provide a line of sight from an ROI perspective. Is it improving your retention? Is it improving your booking and things like that? For a lot of people, this is easier said than done, right? As founders, especially smaller companies, maybe seed series A, it's a hard decision to make where you're not sacrificing what is important and strategic to the company with what is urgent. And if you look at sales knocking on your door to customer success knocking on your door as a CTO or a product leader, everything is urgent. So how do you operationalize this? How do you balance important and strategic versus urgent? Yeah, Lloyd, by the way, this problem, whether it's small or big, it just doesn't go away. In fact, the big companies have more people knocking on your door and much bigger target on your back. And it's really become a very diligent effort to how you go prioritize. You just have to force that discussion because in the product world, there is always a lot more that need to get done. Otherwise you'll have a lot more unhappy customers, unhappy customer success team, unhappy salespeople, unhappy prospects. So it's about prioritization. So the way that at least in terms of operationalizing that we have done multiple times now and really worked is having a very strong, not only the annual cycle where you put together your annual budget and during your annual budget, you are very thoughtful about what are those few right strategies that we are trying to achieve? What new market we are trying to go? What are the new adjacencies that we want to address? And it needs to be right few. And so we need that kind of a long cycle that build our annual plan. And it needs to guide a very strong 90-day cadence. The 90-day cadence is very important that need to drive into these different investment profile that I talked about, run, grow, and transform. Build a layered investment. How much are we going to invest towards quality? How much are we going to invest towards tech debt? How much are we going to invest towards customer success? And really keeping a good chunk of money towards these strategic priorities 
and have a very committed 90 day say do where the product and tech team comes on every 90 day that we invested according to this, if we have a dollar to invest across these four or five different buckets, and we are really delivering on those capability and not trading important for what's urgent. Is there a rubric for prioritization you follow? There are several, Lloyd. Companies can build on their own in the industry. There is like weighted sorted job first. There is like rice. There are multiple product prioritization. But at the end of the day, it's all about few rocks that you want to put. Those are your growth strategic aspect before you start to put your lot of tables, your customer enhancements, customer demand before you really fill up with the sand. But the main thing is all about that, guys. What you don't want to do is that all of a sudden you are investing 70, 80 cent of the dollar towards the run and not leaving enough for the growth. So it's balancing those layered investment and you can have this prioritization framework at the end of the day, it's all about the reach to the customer base, the impact you are making, the risk you will have and the effort you can bring to really go and prioritize. There are multiple in the industry that people now use and some of these are very proven now in the industry. So run, grow, transform. I love it. And I like the example of rocks, pebbles and sand. If you don't mind giving us an example what is a rock? What is a pebble? And what is a sand? The rock is generally something very strategic. So let's say if you are a company and you're a startup or a small business and you are growing and you believe that you have to deliver these capabilities to acquire these set of customers, or you have to get into this kind of a market, or you have to grow from land and expand, whatever that commercial strategy is, but you believe that these one or two or three capabilities that if we do in this next 90 day, it gets you to really achieve those commercial outcomes. Those becomes your rock. In terms of your small pebbles, these could be your customer enhancements. Your customer success team is getting calls from some unhappy customers that if I don't get this report, this is just so important that we just have to go get it done. And sand could be quality defects that are just coming in that you have to always prioritize. But again, keep those in mind with the layered investment is the additional layer that I'm adding to this conversation. So word agile gets thrown around like a bag of chips and agile practices are now mainstream in the software industry. And it's hard to find an organization that doesn't follow agile. But what have you learned working with different companies about agile practices? Some yeah, people no, say I, they're doing agile, but I don't know if they're really doing agile. <laughs> yeah, no, I think one is at least on the product and tech front, I will be hard pressed to not find a company that's not following agile practice or doing agile practices. The challenge is what I describe it more as a business agility. If you just take a step back, Lloyd, the pace of technology innovation has become so fast even the technology companies, software companies have a hard time keeping up. And there is a gap because business is always following. So that is one big trend that I want to make sure that from a business perspective, we remain agile. The second is if you think about it, there is a generational shift happening in the marketplace. Uh, there are more millennials and Gen Z now in the workplace than the older people. And the millennials have a very different perspective on when it comes to using technology. The point being is that the marketplace is changing where there is a far more demand of really consuming technology faster. So if you are a company, it's just not about anymore the product and technology team using Agile. It's more about how the entire company how the entire business is agile, which is what I call as a business agility. Otherwise today, agile just becomes, oh, it's the, some that are technology people, they follow some agile practices while the sales and the marketing and the customer success and the entire company is operating on a very different clock cycle. So building the company where the company itself can be nimble and it can sense and respond to the need that are happening in the marketplace as quickly as the need, as quickly as we understand the unmet need is about business agility. That requires your sales maybe thinking and rethinking about how we have to go introduce the solution in the marketplace that may result into completely reallocating your resources fast. That may be about, we talked about building that press release and that may mean 
marketing may have to rethink about the campaigns and realign that in every 90-day cycle basis. So the business agility is all about really bringing the entire company together and operating on a faster clock cycle. And it's just not anymore about product and tech. And it's more about really responding to this changes happening in the marketplace fast that results into the right commercial outcome and the right customer outcome. What are some expensive mistakes you've seen made here? Lloyd, uh, bar none spoken, and that's what has, is driving many of these playbooks, have built enough product in my life only to find out that how little it gets used by the customers. So as I grew into the product leader, we now instrument our product for telemetry. And you will find out that after you ship the release with all the fanfare, with all the different perspectives, unfortunately, not many people use it or not many people care about it. And you burn millions of dollars and you only come back and say, all of that hard work, all of that thing, all of that sweat that we put in, why did we do it? Literally burn millions of dollars. And that's why I really ask when you start doing your investment, just don't ask for more. Making sure that you are prioritizing the right few things, you are investing it wisely, you are really thinking about upfront, what is that value creation we are doing? Otherwise, there is a good chance that you will push through, you will build something very great, you will spend millions of dollars only to find out on the other end. And if you haven't done good, strong customer validation upfront and you haven't got good customer testimonial as you start to build this, you will be surprised at the tail end that how all that effort was just wasted. You talked about the RICE framework. How many people it's going to reach? What is the impact you feel it's going to uh, have? What is your confidence slash risk? And then what is the effort involved? I was talking to the CMO at HubSpot and he said, I don't want to throw out a marketing initiative if I don't know how many people it's going to reach. And how is it going to reach them? Start with your customer outcomes and how many people it's going to reach, the impact and the effort. Now, the game gets played the way the game gets scored. What are some goals you set for yourself and your companies? How do you define success for enterprise SaaS product and technology? What KPIs should people measure? If you don't measure, if you don't bring that rigor in the organization, because I'm a firm believer in uh, what you said, Lloyd, game really gets played in a company is the way game gets scored. If you really don't set that up and bring that operational rigor in the company to measure on a regular basis, because that's where I have seen the biggest, what I call the knowing doing gap. You meet a founder or you meet a leader, more leaders know what needs to be done. But when it comes to really doing it and putting the rigor, and making sure that you are measuring the right thing and using that to drive the behaviors, using that to establish expectation in organization, using that to really call out, are we winning or are we not winning, is what the difference is. So in terms of how we kind of go about setting it up, I have seen that at least works for me is really strengthen your fact base. You'll be surprised at how many companies you go they may not even know how many total customers they have. As basic as that, or even knowing why they win or why we lose, what's our win rate, what's our loss rate looks like, or even knowing if we are having churn, why we are having churn, and what are those different things that we have to do in the product to drive that, which also kind of starts to help with your prioritization, Lloyd, that you were talking earlier, that sales guys are knocking on your door, they want these 20 things get done, or customer success guys want to get 100 things done. Can you measure that by doing those 20 things or 100 things? What would that result into the ROI? So having that conversation and converting that, you will find out it improves not only your prioritization, but it also brings the objective measure upfront for team to be able to do that. Key KPIs that you look at or you recommend organizations to measure? There are two, at least in two different buckets, the way I look at it. One is making sure that the metrics that you have for C-suite and the board and the executive level are the real one that gives you the answer. How are we investing a dollar for what ROI, for what capabilities we delivered? What are the customer adoption looks like? But then there needs to be a different departmental level. Like we were talking about for product, we want the product engagement kind of a metrics. We really want to see the customer engagement and customer adoption metrics. 
Same thing on the R&D side. For a departmental metric, you want to see your development effectiveness. You want to see your quality trend. You want to see how amount of churn that you are producing. And then there are team level metrics that if you are an agile team, what's your velocity? How much of your story points are getting churned? How you are really being effective as a team in terms of engagement? But the key point is that you, have, you should have the right level of metrics for the right level of organization. More companies I have seen that they will throw team level metrics to the C-suite and that overwhelms the C-suite when they start to look at the team velocities and team churns. But then they are not getting that, how are we investing R&D dollars and are we really getting the business outcome? So it's just making sure that we align them. And the second thing is look for the leading indicator. So let's just say, for example, product churn. Every company measures that. But can we really double click on the product churn and find out that these are the three or four or five different workflows that our end users use, that we get early signals that when power users stop using those, and you can put telemetry for it, you can correlate to that those customers will likely churn, that you can engage them sooner. Same thing, there are leading indicators in terms of customers getting converted from a premium to a paid customer. So again, thinking about leading indicators that can help you really guide the conversation and making sure you have the right level of metrics for the right level of the department, whether it's the department or the C-suite or the team, I think it's a good way to really start building up the KPIs. You got to watch the leading indicators, CSAT, NPS, churn, they're all lagging indicators. What are the key behaviors that drive those. And if you watch that weekly, monthly, quarterly, if you observe that, then you can take actions proactively versus coming and saying, oh, our NPS is low. So if people take nothing away, I think the leading indicator is something that everyone needs to watch out for. And for every function, pretty much, even if you look at sales, you can't just say, I missed my sales. If you don't have enough activities and enough calls and enough meetings, and this is where the rigor, this is where the leadership team, this is where the C-suite has to force that rigor. Really understanding, double-clicking. It's good to measure these, the final outcome, but the smartness is, and this is where you need to have people who can think what great looks like to be able to double-click and really find out what were those leading indicators that caused those things. You said software is a people business. Dive into that. In the software business, Lloyd, as we all know, it's the only industry where two guys in a garage can come back and literally disrupt any big business, any big company. And it generally comes down to the talent practices. We really are looking for when you are bringing people at the last question that you were asking, Lloyd, having people who really know what great feels like, what great looks like. If you have those kind of a people and you bring those people, it's phenomenal. Hire people for those potentials. So that's what I call it when I talk about software as a people business. You spoke about also of a team as a currency. What makes a high-performing agile team? Earlier, we were talking about how we go about really building these agile teams. I think, Lloyd, these days, whether you are a small company or whether you are a large company, you'll not be surprised that you'll find even the large companies are all structured like small teams. The only difference could be that you have two agile team if you're a small business or a three agile team versus you go to big company that you have like hundreds of agile teams. But you only run, you only structure your organization in agile team and you really use team as a currency. Where the leadership responsibility have to come is you have to make sure that your agile teams are well balanced and your agile teams are really healthy. So. To give an example, and maybe I'll give a sports analogy that everyone gives. Let's say if you are an NFL, you're a football team. You need one quarterback. You need a couple of running back. You need a couple of wide receivers. You need a couple of defensive tackle men. Because software creation is a multi-talented sport. You need product managers. You need developers. You need quality people. You need the product marketing people. You need, so again, so if you have to think about the team, just you have to make sure that it's well-balanced in terms of the right number of ratios, the right number of, of people. It doesn't really help if you have an agile team, but you don't have a product managers because now you don't have the people who can feed the right work to the teams. Or if you have developers, but you don't have QA people, now you are producing stuff 
that will not be of high quality and not be verified from the customer acceptance perspective. Or if you have a team, I also encourage, by the way, when you are building team, bring a mix of high, uh, senior people as well as junior people. More time people kind of go bias and say they only want to hire senior people because they can get things done fast. I have seen actually in the technology space, you can bring junior people and combine them with the few senior people. Your team will actually have a higher velocity. You bring more senior people together in a team, you get into personality conflict, you are getting into all kinds of an aspect that actually slows team down and get into the philosophical debate that may not be necessary versus you have a well-balanced with some seniors, some juniors, and it also gives senior people a career path where now they are also coaching junior people to also become bigger. So if you think about and go about creating team in a thoughtful way, it will really result into a far better high-performing team and, and they really are, will be far more self-organized. So that's what I mean by when we say team as a currency. How do you structure this team? Amazon has the two pizza boxes. There's the e-pod structure. What is the ideal team size? Because you can't have a giant monolith team as you scale. Yeah, uh, Lloyd, that's where I really believe that uh, the two pizza team or five to eight people team is the right size team. A lot of research has gone in this space. The larger the team, Lloyd, it just becomes communication issues, collaboration is issues, and that's what really slows the execution down. Five to eight is where the ideal signs have been. I have seen teams or uh, allow team to go up to 10, but beyond 10, I start really questioning when my leadership team comes to the table, if they have any team size that's bigger than 10. Five to eight, ideal. Ideally, three to four developers, one or two, if you are driving a lot more automation on testing side, one from a product management perspective, and you bring that kind of a right balance, five to eight people, you will see a far better outcome. We used to measure in our organization, every team in terms of the story points and how their productivity is, improve, uh, is delivering, you will find beyond five to eight, it really starts to come down for productivity perspective. So important that we keep those teams small. If they start to become big, better for you to break it down into two different teams rather than keep building up. And that's like having a startup within a startup. Probably they have their own mission and they have their own vision and their own metrics. And the product manager is working with the developers to drive that outcome. Yeah, the whole thing is that we feed work to the team. We just and as if you do a good job in terms of that run, grow, transform that we talked about and the strategies and how we have to invest, you may find out that one big rock, you can give it to one team and say, guys, go get it done. And you have the other rock, you can give it to another team. You can also bring that separation by which you can also grow so that it really, if you can reduce the dependencies, team will go faster at it. Now, if you were to start a company today from scratch, how would you build your product and engineering team? Who would be the first few people you would hire? Yeah, I think the first few people is the difficult part of it, depending on who the founders are. Sometimes the founders itself, they are very strong product visionary and they already have a great perspective because they are very unsettled with the problem that they really are tackling that maybe it's a personal something that they may have experienced. But certainly if I'm building a product and tech team, Lloyd, I'll probably more focus on the values. Like for example, we talked a lot about it, how customer connected we are. So I will be looking for people who are not shy of speaking with customer or how transparently people operate because we talked a lot about being very objective, uh, being very measuring. So I'll be looking for people with some of those attributes as we bring, depending on how the founders are. If the founders are from the product side, I'm sure they need some help on the go-to-market side of the house, especially to really engage that. But if the products are, if the founders are coming from go-to-market, very important that they have a strong someone who can give the product vision and product direction before you start really engaging the engineers. I've seen more often people will just go hire developers to let's just go start building something only to find that you may be building something that may not work out, but maybe a better designer who can come at least and have paint that canvas that you can go validate, maybe a good way to start it. How do you source 
top talent? What tips you've picked up on finding talent that's worked well for you? Maybe some few actions that people can improve hiring right away. Lloyd, over the years, earlier in my career, I used to hire people for their hard skills and more for the aptitude, more for their engineering acumen or product acumen. Over the, I would say the last decade or so, it's a lot more about the potential. I have found that if you hire people with great attitude, the aptitude can be developed. And over the years, I have become far more defined when I mean potential. I look for people who can really thrive in a changing environment, people who can really thrive in an ambiguous environment, people who can really operate when things are constrained. So again, who can really close, we talked about the knowing doing gap. I think those are the part of the potential where I really spend more of my time. And do they come to the table with more of a we attitude? Are we the team player versus the me attitude? Those dimensions I have seen, if you interview for it and you have the right candidate, you got to really also make sure that they know if they are a developer, they know the coding, they understand what they are talking about it. Or if they are a product manager, they have done that, that how they go about doing the prioritization. I think those hard skills are important. But I want to make sure that we just don't discount the soft skills because in the longer run, you will find out that your superstars are the one who really had those soft skills. The only thing constant is change. And so optimize or over-index for attitude more than aptitude. I like that. Everyone's logging in from their laptop somewhere in the world. What are some challenges with trust, communication, and engagement? that present and how do you solve for that in this environment where everyone's distributed trust actually is highly correlated to speed if you have a high trusting environment there is a great chance that company has a higher speed of execution i have found this is about how strong your frontline management is regardless of the size of the company uh, smaller the company there's a good chance that founder knows everyone if it's less than 100 people, there is a lot more personal relationship and there is a far more camaraderie where people know the top leadership. But as the company grows, you will find out that about 80, 90% of an interaction that individual developers, individual people, the frontline staff is happening is with the frontline manager. So if your frontline management has not bought into the mission, has not bought into the vision, and if they cannot articulate why the company is going, where the company is going. And if the frontline management don't have what I call the founder's mindset and really believing in the company, it really gets into the trust deficit. Make sure that your frontline management really is in tune with the company because that's how the trust works. What are some key traits of these frontline managers? When do you bring a CTO? What are the traits? When do you bring our frontline manager? I think we just sort of talked about already in terms of the team sizes. Once you start to have those team and as you fund these teams, important that you bring a manager. I think the key attribute uh, Lloyd is, which is one of the mistakes that we do it all too often in the product and tech world, especially in the technology world, we usually make our smartest developer the manager. And more often than not, because we believe that this guy can really pull and get the work done. Sometimes uh, those people also have a higher EQ and they, are because they can become a very successful manager and they have the potential. But in more often cases that I have seen that while in such an environment, the manager can go fix the problem very quickly and he or she can really step in with whatever the problem is happening, but generally speaking, they have a very difficult time having people discussion, having career coaching conversation, having making sure how we go about building trust with the team in terms of what's happening at the company level, what's happening at the business level and how we go about doing it. So very important that as we start to put people into the management rank, and it's okay to bring developers into that rank. That's how I grew my career. I was a technology guy, individual contributor. But I had the potential to get into the management side. And then I had the coaching and my desire to become very successful as a manager 
because it's a very humbling responsibility the moment you become a manager because now it's not only uh, your own future that you are driving but you are also driving the future of 8 to 10 people that you are leading or 15 to 20 people if you are leading two teams and it's a very sincere responsibility that gets given to you so if you cannot really relate to it in terms of the people in terms of their career ambition in terms of what's are happening in their life in terms of how you can go help them very important aspect of it so i want to make sure that as a, a we bring people on the management side people is what they really play into it and they can help build the trust otherwise it gets into that gap and what are some key development skills that you recommend if developers want to level up into leaders because everyone's like the best coder should become the manager that shouldn't be the case your best sales rep can't be your sales leader because as a sales leader you got to motivate and inspire people at the same time you got to recruit people and you got to coach them is that similar from a engineering leader standpoint yeah i think very similar but the point is that what and, and rightfully the question is what are those different skills that we need to really invest in so for example we run used to run our management excellence kind of a program in almost all the businesses because it's we have realized that it's generally the weakest link that we have to improve on to really build that trust and bring that agility bring that change bring that how really uh, the organization can really scale some of the skills are like how do you even have a challenging discussions with employees because generally speaking if you are a great developer and you haven't really developed those uh, eq aspect of it people generally shy away from having conflict people generally shy away from having discussions that can be very difficult and you can do these challenging difficult discussions with empathy you don't have to go kill the will of the people but certain things you just have to be really if you have the natural attitude towards it that's great but if you don't have that natural attitude towards having how you go deal with these conflicting situations how you go deal with these challenging situations because that's where if you are a smart developer turned manager generally you shy away just getting engaged into that and you will hide your head into let me just go get the coding done let me just go get the task complete rather than let me go deal with the people situation that may be needed or similarly if you are driving change because not all the change is what is accepted by the people and you are trying to achieve something very impossible if you cannot really articulate that change wisely because you are already struggling with yourself becomes too hard so i think those are the different skills of how you deal with those where you have to put people into skills development program into training program and but it requires also that you have someone who actually wants to invest in that the last thing you want to do is that you put a smart developer through the program only for that person to come back and say this is not my cup of tea i never wanted it now you not only lost a smart developer but you also lost someone who could have been a, a better manager i want to dive into empathy because empathy also gets thrown around like a bag of chips and people don't really understand what it is like to be empathetic define that for us with an example like how can leaders show more empathy acknowledging and creating that environment first of all should be very clear that you have spent time building relationships you really understand people so take any difficult conversation if you cannot put yourself in the people's shoe and articulate whatever that change is and how hard it is for people and you support them for whatever that hardness is coming and really understand that what are those attributes of growing performing companies <laughs> i think some of them are obvious that we talked about it the booking growth and also growing profitably so some of those are the financial measures the other aspect is really the what we talked about it in terms of measuring the value out if you are delivering a capability it's the why aspect you know why are we doing it we are doing it for customers to achieve something so measuring those are the key attributes the other is also in terms of the what we are doing so those capabilities that we are delivering the adoption aspect those are the next set of attributes and the last one is more i put that in the how category so this is where if you have let's say you are running devops i'm just making it up stuff here or security or product management 
and you know what great feels like, you are measuring those aspects of it. So to become a high performing, so not only financial outcome, but why we are doing, what we are doing and how we are doing, measuring all of those is generally speaking is what really starts to drive a high performing organization. As you look back, what do you wish you did more of and what do you wish you did less of? Maybe over the years, we get more wiser. So if I have to tell my younger self what I do more of or what I should do less of, certainly on the more side, and I've learned it and it continues to learn about it is more about active listening. God has given us two ears for a particular reason and one mouth, an important part of skill. Takes a lot of effort and, and continue to learn on that. And in terms of what I would do less of, uh, some of these things now have become part of the playbook. It's about making sure that we prioritize and we are not overextending ourselves. I keep reminding my younger self that it's about doing the right few things than doing a lot of things. And don't overextend, don't overcommit, because that's when you know, it starts to really fall apart. And as you've made this journey from an engineer to a product and engineering leader, any books that have formulated your journey or that you recommend others read? There are several. I'm sure people must have read many of those, like Innovator's Dilemmas to Hard Thing About Hard Thing to Zero to One. One that I read last year, Think Again, The Power of Not Knowing What You Don't Know. I thought that was a very well done book. You meet a lot of founders, a lot of executives. What is the one piece of unconventional advice that people ignore but shouldn't? Yeah, I mean, it's something I mentor my kids about this thing and I suggest that to other entrepreneurs also. It's one of those advice that we get when we are on a plane. Put your mask first before you put that on the kids as a parent and as founders, you are the parent of your company and taking care of your mental health and physical health is an important part of it. And generally speaking, if you sleep well, have a good eight hour sleep, you will be healthy and the brain works in a very different way and it expands. So my advice would be sleep for eight hours. There's nothing good coming when you really cram 100 hours and you really are, are, are over getting work, but sleep is good. You are the parent of your company, really helps you really grow. Alok, what a pleasure it's been. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Traction Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. And you can find more information and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at boast.ai. That's B-O-A-S-T dot A-I forward slash blog.